But yeah, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you all. It's great to see everyone in your faces and stuff. It's great to see some smiles. It's finally I can, you know, instead of just seeing your eyes, I can actually see your whole face. So I feel so bad. I've, I've introduced myself to some of you like four times just because I can't recognize you with the mask on sometimes. So I apologize for that. But it's great to see you all. Uh, my name is Brandon. I get to serve uh, as a deacon here, and uh, I'm grateful to bring the word today. Let me pray real quick, uh, and then we'll dive in. Dear Lord, I pray that you would um, change us with your word, would help us to focus on you and your glory alone today. God, tell us something about yourself, and that I pray that it would change our hearts. I pray that we wouldn't leave here um, unchanged. I pray that we would leave here knowing you deeper and striving to be more and more like your son. Lord, change, change us, shape us, and mold us into his image. And I pray all these things in your son's precious, holy, and wonderful name. Amen. Renovation, I have a confession to make. I love watching romantic comedies. I know, I know a big bearded guy like me, you know, strong looking guy like me, loves watching Sleepless in Seattle. It must be shocking to some of you think, looking at me right now, uh, but it's true. And actually, if you ask Holly, she would say it's like semi-true. That's only because the movies that Holly picks are usually unbearably predictable. You know, we all know these kinds of movies usually found on the Hallmark Channel where this young, small-town girl uh, has like a hipster coffee shop uh, and ends up falling in love with a, with a guy from Starbucks or something like that, like some rival business. Uh, and, they, and they end up falling in love, and then they, in the end, that, that business, her business is saved. And all these movies, they all, they all follow that same formula or that same pattern. Uh, you can almost guarantee it sometimes. And when we watch these movies, it frustrates me because you never really see the end of the couple. You see like a moment in time. You see that grand big gesture that the man makes. You see them kiss for the first time. But you never really see them at the end. You never really see them how they end up. You never see them get married. You never see them grow old together. You never really see them have kids. You never really see the hardships and stuff that they face kind of see just this little snippet in time. And I always am frustrated because I want to know how they end up. I want to know where they will be at the end. But for some of you, though, you're not wondering what, how this couple in a rom-com is going to end up. You're wondering where you're going to be at the end of some serious things. For some of you, you're wondering, where will I be at the end of college? Or where will I be at the end of this week or this month if I can't pay my bills on time? Or where will I be at this end of, of this season of heartbreak and suffering and loss? Have you ever wondered, though, where you'll be at the end? Where you'll be at the end? When Jesus comes back, at the end when Jesus comes back, where will you be? What will happen to you? You ever wondered that? Have you ever considered that? Well, today as we read our passage, consider the end. And consider where you'll be at the end. Read with me Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through, 30, 47 through 50. 
Jesus says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Who here has gone fishing? Raise their hand. Wow. Almost all of you. That's awesome. I was hoping like 50-50 when I would say that. But yeah, almost all of you guys, that's awesome. I love fishing. I think it's a great pastime. love just going out there and enjoying some time on the lake uh, and just, you know, wasting a couple of hours. Even though I don't catch anything, it's always just fun to sit out there and, uh, and try to catch something. Um, but, you know, something I noticed was that uh, something I noticed when preparing this, this sermon is that there's actually a lot of ways to fish. And I'm no expert or anything like that. These are just some things that I've noticed. And, you know, like you could go and get a pole, uh, the classic way, go get a pole, go get uh, some bait, some lures, some bobbers and stuff like that, and go out on a lake or a river and just sit out there and try to catch fish with a pole. Um, or you could go the, like really high tech route and get like one of those nice big bass boats that has like three sonar systems and like four plasma screen TVs and like basically does everything for you besides drop the line into the water, and almost and you know you can be guaranteed that you almost catch a fish every single time. Or you can go another classic, simple way and get a little minnow net and stand in a crick. I know I say crick, I'm from the Midwest, um, so it's a crick. So you can stand in the crick with a with a little minnow net and try to catch some tadpoles or some tiny little fish as they swim by. Um, I don't know, is Ohio in the Midwest? I just thought about that, but anyway, um, I'm getting lost. Or you could go the super classic, like, manly way and just dive into the water and try to scoop a fish out with your bare hands. I mean, that's how I assume Bob Steves and Joe Crabb do it, so. <laughs> I've seen Bob attack something in the water, and it is ferocious. So I imagine Bob Steves dives in and grabs that fish with his bare hands. But there's many ways to fish. And so, for, and, and, has anybody here, though, has anybody ever taken out two boats sailed them along the water, and dropped a net the size of two football fields in between them and gathered fish along the way. No one? Yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, that's how they're, that's the fishing that's taking place in this parable. See, back in the first century, when they would fish with a net, they would sail out two boats, they would drop in a giant net called a dragnet, It was roughly about the size of two football fields. And they would sail along gathering fish. Now if you think think reeling in a a big catch with a pole is hard, imagine reeling in and pulling ashore this giant net, this massive net that's been filled with fish after a day of sailing. It would probably take all of us in here pulling with all we had to get this thing to shore. It wasn't an easy task to get this thing, to, to claim this catch. It wasn't like an easy thing where you pull the, pull the pole in and you're like, yeah, I got the big one. It took a lot of effort and work. And once they got it to shore, the work was not over. Because the one of the downsides of fishing this way is that you would catch any, every kind of fish. You had really had no control over what kind of fish you would get. You would just sail along and all the fish would gather in the net. And so when they would sit down and when they bring that, when they finally get that net to shore, they would sit down and open the net and they would sort out the good from the bad. They would sort the good fish from the bad fish. It was common practice for the fishermen. 
Because they didn't want those useful, they didn't want those bad fish or decayed fish or worthless fish. They wanted those good fish because that's how they were going to get paid. That's how they were going to make the, their living. So they would sit down, open the net, and they would sort out the good fish from the bad fish, the useful fish from the unuseful fish. And Jesus is telling us something about the kingdom in this parable. Jesus is using this imagery to tell us something about the kingdom. But what specifically about the kingdom? What is Jesus specifically trying to tell us about the kingdom? He's not just speaking in a general way. He's trying to tell us something specific. Look with me at verse 49 again. Jesus says this, So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. See, not only is Jesus telling us something about the kingdom, but he's telling us something about the kingdom at the end. He's telling us something about the kingdom at the end. And not only is he telling us something about the kingdom at the end, but he's telling us that a last kingdom judgment is coming at the end. And he even goes one step further. Not only does he tell us that a last kingdom judgment is coming, but he's going to tell us how this last judgment is going to take place, how it will happen. And the first thing we see is that at the end, Jesus will send his angels to separate and distinguish the good from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous. That's the first thing we see in this last judgment. We see angels sent by Jesus to pull in the net of the kingdom to gather the people, of, to gather mankind, and to begin the work of separating them out. Separating the good from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous, to carry out the judgment that Jesus wants to take place. And this judgment that Jesus wants to take place is done by distinction through separation. Done by his distinction through separation. He wants the good, he wants the good distinct and separated from the bad. Because in the last, the final state of the kingdom, the last final state of the kingdom, there is no room for evil. There is no room for bad. For in the eternal kingdom of Jesus, there's no evil, there's no sin, there's no wickedness. You can be sure there's no room for it. There's no exception. So just as the men in the parable pull the net to shore and gather the fish and separate them out from good and bad, the angels will do the same. They will gather in the net of the kingdom. They will gather in all mankind and they will sit down and they will begin the work of separating out the good from the bad. But Jesus is not talking about fish here. Jesus is talking about people. And at the end, Jesus will use his angels to distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous. He will use his angels to separate out the, the good from the bad. The good people from the bad people. The righteous people from the unrighteous people. And some of us might be thinking, well, that's harsh. That's harsh. 
But don't we really all desire this kind of judgment and justice? Don't we all desire to see justice justice and judgment carried out upon the wicked and evil? I mean, look at our culture today. Constantly pushing for this. Constantly pushing for the justice and judgment of the wicked. But the reality is our culture's idea of justice and judgment is messed up. It's messed up. It's misplaced. Just look at cancel culture. I mean, they decide who is good, who is evil and wicked based off of old tweets. They decide who deserves judgment based off of old tweets. And the reality is that we all know is that our wickedness goes deeper than some old tweets. Our wickedness goes much deeper than something that we said 20 years ago. And the even further truth is, is that, that we, because of this wickedness, we all deserve to be judged. Not just who our culture deems fit to be judged. We all deserve to be judged. And I think that's why we find God's judgment so harsh and unfair. is because we often view God's judgment through the lens of human judgment. We often view God's judgment through the lens of human judgment. We often think that God judges the same way humans do. It's not true. We can't do that. Because God's judgment is perfect. It's true. It's just. It's righteous. It cannot be compared to how our culture judges people and brings justice to people. Only God can provide the perfect justice and judgment that we all desire. God's not looking back at old tweets. God's looking into hearts. God's looking into hearts of men and women, and he's deciding who is good and who is bad, who is righteous and who is wicked. Make no mistake, this parable, this passage, the judgment that Jesus is telling is coming, is coming. God's judgment is coming. It's not a matter of if it will come. It's a matter of when it will come. And one thing matters above all else at the end. One thing matters all above all else when this judgment comes. One thing is of grave importance. And that's how you relate to Jesus. That's how you relate to Jesus, how you live in relationship to Jesus. Because the distinct difference between the righteous and the wicked is how each lives in relationship to Jesus. See, the wicked reject Jesus and evidence such rejection and disobedience. We, know, we can know this. We can know that this is true because the Bible often characterizes the righteous and the wicked based on how they live their lives. And the unrighteous are the ones who reject Jesus and live in disobedience to God's law. They're the ones that live in accordance to the wickedness of their hearts and their flesh and their desires. And they reject Jesus and turn away from him. And because of that, there's no life in them. There's no life in them. 
And while you can be, and while your works will not save you, you can be sure that they will destroy you. You can be sure they will destroy you and bring calamity and judgment and wrath and, and destruction upon you. And at the end, for those who reject Jesus, Jesus will send those to eternal torment and judgment and hell. At the end, those who reject Jesus, he will send to eternal wrath and hell. Read with me verse 50. Jesus says this, And throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where those who reject Jesus will be at the end. They will be in hell. However, we need to be careful because our culture can easily lead us astray and numb us to this doctrine of hell. Because our culture responds to the discomfort of this doctrine in one of two ways. They respond by either making a joke, laughing it off, deflecting with humor, or they respond in utter disbelief. You know, you hear people in our culture say like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to hell for that one. Or yeah, I'll see you in hell. Or you hear people say, hell's not real. Hell should not be something we joke about. It should not be something we laugh off. Do not, it should be something that, sh that should terrify us. Do not let culture with its jokes and its humor and its niceties about hell and its cartoon red devils <laughs> detract and distract you from the reality of hell. Do not let it numb you. Do not let it lead you to apathy and complacency. Because make no mistake, hell is real. Hell is real. And real people are going to go there. It, this is heavy. This is horrific. The Bible is clear. Hell is a real place of eternal torment. That's an eternal separation from the goodness of God. And it is reserved only for those who are wicked and unrighteous. It's reserved for those whose sins have not been paid for and therefore they will spend eternity under the holy wrath of God. This is not new info for you. This is not new for some of you. For some of you, you, all, you know all too well of the reality of hell. For some of you have, been, have wept over friends, family, and neighbors who have died, and you're not sure what the relationship with Jesus was like. 
You're not sure where they'll end up. Or some of you have wept over family, friends, and neighbors who have died rejecting Jesus. And you know exactly where they'll end up. And it's safe to say all all of us in this room have a deep, deep concern for our unsaved family and friends. All of us desire to see our unsaved family and friends come to Jesus, know Jesus, and be saved from their sins, and then spend eternity in heaven with him. But do not let your concern just be concern. Let it move you to mission. Let it move you to action. Let it propel you to go and talk to your neighbor and talk to your friends and talk to your family who do not know Jesus and pray for them. The biggest thing that we could do is just let our concern just be concern. Don't let it. This heaviness that you feel this, this weight that you feel right now with specific names on your mind of people that you know who are rejecting Jesus, do not let that concern just be concerned today. Let it move you to action. Move you to mission. And my non-Christian friends, hear this as a warning to you. Hear this as a wake-up call to you. If you reject Jesus, you can expect judgment. You can expect judgment at the end. And all the things that God has given you, all the goodness that God has given you, all the grace that God has given you in this life, the very air you breathe, just the, the comfort of having a cold drink of water, your health, your home, everything that you hold dear will be taken from you. Will be taken from you. And you will be placed under the wrath of God. Your comfort will turn to agony and pain and torment and suffering. And your joy will be replaced with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But praise be to God, because there is good news for you today. Because while this judgment is going to happen, it has not happened yet. You still have time to turn to Jesus, to repent and believe, to have faith in him, to place all your hope and trust in him. So turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Obey Jesus. Turn from the wickedness of your hearts and turn to obedience and love of God. Repent and believe in Jesus because only he alone can save you from the torment and judgment and internal suffering that is hell. And only he can save you from the bondage and shackles that is your sin.
So turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And when you do that, you will not only find a Savior who is capable of saving you, but you will find a Savior that is willing and ready and eager to save you. God, Jesus, does not save you out of some general obligation. Like, I have to do this. God saves you because he wants to save you. No matter your sin, God wants you to turn to him, trust in him, repent and believe. So turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. For while you have time, you do not have an unlimited amount of time as Alex Morris would say. You have time. It's not unlimited. We don't know when this judgment's going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen when we walk out these doors. We don't know. So turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. But this is not the only truth of the passage. This begs the question, How can you be righteous in God's sight? How can you know that you are righteous? And how can you know that you'll spend eternity with Jesus at the end? Well, just as the wicked are characterized by their disobedience, they're characterized by their rejection, the righteous are are the ones who trust Jesus and evidence such trust in obedience. The righteous are the ones that trust Jesus. Or the good fish in the parable are the one who trusted Jesus. They're the ones that lived in accordance to God's law, and they obeyed God. But do not mishear me, because their law-keeping is not what saved them. Their law-keeping is not what saved them. No, it is though they were dead in their trespasses and sins, and it is only the redeeming work of Christ that saved them. Not their works, not this law-keeping, not their obedience. Christ. Christ saved them. And he brought them from death to life, and he made them righteous. He gave them the gift of righteousness. And because of this gift of righteousness, they're now able to live a righteous life. These are the people who will spend eternity in heaven with God. These are the people that will experience paradise These are the people who will taste of the goodness of God forever. And if that's you today, if you say, I trust Jesus, I place my faith, hope, and belief in him alone, let this inspire you to holiness. Let this truth propel you on mission. And let this Truth, anchor you in the hope of heaven. See, because your righteous standing before a holy God should inspire you to to lead and live a righteous life. Lead and live a holy life. It's kind of like how, you know, know how kids, they look up to their father, man, I want to be like my dad. Because our God is holy, we should desire to be holy. Because our Father in heaven is holy, we should desire and inspire to be holy. We should want to be like him. 
We should want to live the way that he wants us to live. We should live in obedience to the way that he wants us to live. It should lead us, this truth should lead us to righteous living every single day. Your life should be characterized by righteousness. People should look at you and say, man, that person is a righteous person. That person knows Jesus. That that person follows Jesus. That person lives a holy life. No matter if they're Christian or non-Christian, they should be able to look at you and know of the work that Christ has done in you. And your life should be one of continuous sanctification where more and more each day you are turning from the desires of your heart and turning to obedience to God. And make no mistake, this sanctification is a process. You're not going to walk out these doors today and be fully sanctified or fully holy or anything like that. You're going to slowly but surely progress down the path of sanctification. And make no mistake, you will fall. You will fail. But the beauty is, Christ is there to pick us back up, to dust us off, and to lead us closer and closer and closer down that path so that we can continue to live that righteous life. And brothers and sisters, do not mishear me. Your works do not save you. If I could be clear about one thing today, your works do not save you, but they are for sure an evidence of the work that's been done in you. They might not save you, but they are an evidence of the righteousness that Christ has given you, the work that he's done in your heart, the salvation that he's given you from your sin and death. If you trust Christ, it should come out of you. The work that's been done in you should be exposed out of you. People should know by the work that you do that you are saved. As James would say, faith without works is dead. Your faith should generate a works that points back to God, to points back to the, to the, the work that Christ has done inside of you. So don't turn back to your old self. Do not turn back to the old desires, to, to your old wickedness. Continue to strive to be more and more like Jesus. To be more and more like Jesus. Renovation Church, this should... This should affect our every day because it propels our mission to be warning others about this impending doom. Like I said before, do not let your concern just be concern. It should propel us to go to our neighbor, propel us to talk to our neighbor, to pray for our neighbor, to engage our neighbor relationally. I'm not saying go pound on your neighbor's door and say, hell's coming for you. I'm saying go to your neighbor and say, come over for a barbecue. Come join my family for dinner. We're having some friends over. You should come. Or hey, how can I pray for you today? Engage your neighbors and your friends and your family who are unsaved relationally. Talk with them. Have conversation with them. Invite them to be a part of your life. And through that, you can share the gospel and show the work that Christ has done in you. Christians, do you not feel the urgency of this? Do you not feel the weight of this?
again, I think sometimes the watering down of hell can lead us to, ap- to apathy and complacency. I urge you to not let that happen. Do not let that happen to you. Hell is real, and we must not let another day go by where we say, I'll tell Jesus, I'll tell that person about Jesus tomorrow. Like I said before, tomorrow is not guaranteed. It could happen tomorrow. This judgment could happen tomorrow. Jesus could call in the boats tomorrow. So don't let another day go by where you say, I'll talk to that person about Jesus, or I'll invite that person over tomorrow. So this urgency is why we are planting in Baldwinsville. It's why we're planting Covenant Church. Something that I realized when I was preparing the sermon and looking at the statistics of Baldwinsville is that there's 40% of people that live in Baldwinsville that have no religious affiliation whatsoever. That tells me there's 40%, as if Jesus came back tomorrow, there's 40% of Baldwinsville that's going to hell. That is an astonishing figure to me. It, not, it just like blew my mind. And it made it all more clear of the urgency of why we are planting Covenant Church. Why we're going to go to those people on that map. Why we need to have urgency every single day. It's because there's people, who, and people in Baldwinsville and North Syracuse and Syracuse and Clay, Liverpool, who desperately need to hear about Jesus. Who desperately need to hear about the impending doom that's coming. Don't let this lead you to apathy. Have this propel you on mission. And lastly, this should anchor, our, anchor us in our hope of heaven. What Jesus is telling us here about the end, what he's telling us about the kingdom, should bring us tremendous hope every single day. Because the hope we have in the kingdom is that at the end, Christ will bring all sin all evil to its just end. And while, and you know, you might not know where you are in the story, you might not know how close to the end you are, and you're going to face struggles and hardships and suffering and heartbreak today or tomorrow, you can have tremendous hope because you will know where you will be at the end. You know the final chapter. You know how your story will end with Christ. You know that Christ will bring all sin and evil to its just end, and you will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. That should bring you so much hope today. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, no matter what uncertainty and chaos that's in your life, you can know that at the end, I will be with Jesus. If that doesn't motivate you today, if that doesn't give you joy, I don't know what will. That's exciting. So where will you be at the end? Where will you be at the end? That all depends on how you live in relationship to Jesus. It all depends on how you live in relationship to Jesus. Read Revelation with me. Verses chapter 21, 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, this passage in Revelation paints for us a great picture of the end. And you can see that your relationship with Jesus matters. How you relate to Jesus matters. So friends, are you anticipating this glory? Are you anticipating what's described here in Revelation? Are you waiting for this end? Or will your end be with weeping and gnashing of teeth? You can know the answer to that question by answering this one. Do you reject Jesus or do you trust Jesus? For those of you who trust Jesus, or for those of you who reject Jesus, you can expect judgment at the end. And for those of you who trust Jesus, you can expect glory at the end. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray for those, who, those people in this room that do not know you. I pray that you would bring them from death to life. Show them your love and your kindness and your grace, God, and give them a new heart and a new life in you so that they may spend eternity with you, so that they may be set free from the bondage of their sins. And Lord, I want to lift up those who, in, who are in here that trust you and obey you, I pray that you continually move us down the path of sanctification, continually make us more and more into the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray that, you, that this truth would propel us on mission. I pray that this truth would um, anchor us in our hope of heaven. And I pray that this truth would inspire us to holiness. Lord, let us not be complacent or apathetic towards these things. Lord, let us, our concern move us to action. Lord, help us to be more and more like your son every single day. God, I pray all these things in your son's precious, holy, and wonderful name. Amen. Amen.